Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new year and to a new year of Wild. I took a few weeks off over the Christmas period, you might have noticed, and it was great. Well, actually, I've got to be honest, I got bored after a bit and realised, perhaps not for the first time, that relaxing for long periods is just not my thing. And it's the same with nail spas and, I don't know, things like baths with candles and doing banter and margaritas at long boozy lunches. It's just not something I like doing. Pulsing back and forth between high-intensity productive stuff and rest on a more frequent basis, I think tends to work better. Like, so taking an hour off a day or I don't know, a day off a week to rest. And it works way better if I'm doing stuff that actually refuels me so that I can go back to the high intensity stuff. So we're talking things like hiking, camping, swimming. Anyway, it's a good realization to have at my ripe old age of, well, whatever. Anyway, All of which is to say, I'm glad to be back and connecting into dynamic conversations with you here again. This year, I'm going to continue the wild ramble and I've locked in a bunch of really wild minds already for the year. And we'll be exploring some really interesting specific themes that are big and looming and I feel need to be wrestled with. So I'll also be adding a few extra features to this whole thing. And I'll do that in a couple of weeks, I think. Anyway, If I haven't already, and please feel free to do so while I do this introductory spiel, please do rate and review Wild with Sarah Wilson over at Apple or Spotify. Give it five stars, I don't know, a little blurb to say how much you like it would be wonderful and share it with your friends. And also, if you're wanting to discuss some of the issues we cover in the conversations here on Wild, my Substack is where this happens and that's sarahwilson.substack.com. You can look it up on the interwebs and the link is in the notes. But enough of all that preamble and hustle. My God, I hate doing it. Let's get to today's guest. You might know the incredible woman I sit down with today as inmate Lorna Morello in the Netflix mega hit Orange is the New Black. I know Hale Stone because we met on Instagram when we started liking and commenting on each other's climate posts during Australia's black summer bushfires. 
truly I have met an incredible kind of gang of really great humans from speaking out on big, important, wild things on social media. And funnily, we've come to all follow each other. So I'm talking, I don't know, Juliet Lewis, Cat Power, if you know that singer, AOC, and of course, Hiao. Now, at the time when I first came across her post, I was really heartened, thrilled, and even shocked that here was a mega celebrity who was bold enough to speak out on our lacking Scott Morrison government. But Hale went further. She announced on Instagram that she was giving up her green card visa and basing herself and her family in Australia to reduce her carbon emissions. I mean, that's a massive sacrifice. She also committed to offsetting any future overseas gigs that she may have to take on by donating 50% of the earnings to climate action groups, which is super wild. She continues to put skin in the game. She's now completing sustainability studies at the University of Wollongong and has launched a platform called High Neighbour, which is all about using community-funded solar projects to finance scholarships for locals to train for low-carbon jobs. It's this incredible kind of intermediary step in the just transition to the new green economy. For this chat, I travelled to the small town of Bulai, south of Sydney, where Yael lives with her husband, Jack, who runs the Indigenous Mentor Program, AIME or AMI. And they live there with her two very young daughters. So we actually have to sit in her lock-up garage downstairs to escape the dog, the newborn baby who's been looked after by a neighbour, and another neighbour's whippersnipper. We discuss where we stand on wokeism, the navigation of power, and the highly litigious and emotionally charged Jeffrey Rush defamation case. It gets emotional as we get into all the human complexities and and we move beyond binary judgment with the ugly, tricky stuff of life. We talk about how we love navigating the weird, hyper-aware, self-conscious, messy time that we're straddling. And yes, with all the caveats and pronouns and so on. The subtleties of being a middle-class white lady and what we can really do to use our privilege for betterment is another topic that we cover off. This is the kind of chat I want to be having always with as many people as I can. I think you'll enjoy this one. Please enjoy. I read somewhere that you auditioned for the role somewhat hungover because you'd gotten married the day before and you'd bought some red lipstick for your wedding and you decided to wear it to the audition and that was the lipstick that became almost the signifier of your character. Yeah, yeah, that is what happened. It feels like several lifetimes ago because that marriage was to an ex-husband. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so that specifically feels like a long time ago. It was also the show lasted seven years. So I think that's like a generational cycle, you know, and the show took me through enormous life transformation. And part of that was the huge success of the show. And it was like a, almost like a spiritual test, you Mm -hmm. know, to go through that kind of experience, focusing on your appearance, focusing on red carpets and award ceremonies, um, and then trying to do work like acting or at least good acting that's deeply internal and felt and connected and and human. Those are two really different things. Mm. Um, I, I often think of Jean-Paul Sartre's 
sort of portrayal of the waiter and how, you know, the waiter would walk in. He'd watch the waiter walk in in his civvies, you know, his civilian clothes, and then put on the apron or his outfit Mm. and become the waiter. And that's how I used to see doing television as well. It was I'd put my apron on, I'd perform my role, I'd take my apron off and go home and eat baked beans. But with your when you're actually really recognisable in the street, you've got several aprons you've got to take on and off constantly. Mm. And, of course, the show was quite unique. It was very um, ahead of its time, I think, in so many ways. And it was praised for humanising prisoners but also putting forward images of all kinds of women, you know, biracial. Mm, yeah, beyond um, images, stories. Yeah. Stories human, human stories, which had been so lacking for so long. And it did things to me as well. Yeah, it what did do you mean by that? To me. Well, it was a show about flipping your expectations, really. You know, you sit there and kind of try and get your head around what it is to to commit a crime or what, what is, what is crime? Well, it's something that goes against a set of rules established by other humans. You know, it doesn't really take into context, context of life, privilege, money, opportunity, someone's mental health. It's a really flawed system. Yeah. So when we look at when it's kind of like an amazing way to challenge all kinds of established ideas that we have in our life. I guess the legal system is one of our strongest versions of like rule and regulation that we have. And when you dissect it in a show like that and start to see, well, what is fair? What is just, you know, this idea of the Department of Corrections, what are you correcting? And if you're correcting, then you must have an idea of what is right and what is wrong. And where is that coming from? I know the writer set out to use the white woman going to prison as sort of a Trojan horse to get people in. And then once they were into the show, they then be, we were able to see the perspectives of black women, Hispanic women, um, lesbian women, transgendered women. And it got criticised for that as well as the show progressed for using that technique and then not actually going far enough. How did you feel about that? Because you're a white woman. You also came from a country where the justice system is somewhat different. How did you feel? The Trojan horse idea, I think that was her technique. Yeah. And that's acknowledging a world that is, you know, has been told again and again, things are only commercial if they come in through a recognisable perspective of a, a white sort of largely heterosexual, you know, Middle class perspective. So that was her way. That was yeah. her tool. And I would never, I would actually never criticize that because what it did, it was a key into a really vast array of characters. And this is a show unlike any show in that, God, by the end, we had our cast lists were in the hundreds because we had this collage of life. And that was incredible, at times confusing. Um, I didn't know most of the people that were on the show by the end of it, but she did something. Genji did something that had never really been done before. So I don't, I don't criticize that. That was her way. I think the criticisms are important and it's like with everything at the moment. I think people get quite freaked out that something they thought was good and was doing the right thing, you know, um, like wokeism. 
Mm. You know, I'm not talking hyperwokeism, but I'm talking, you know, dialogue that goes to that next level mm. of at least trying to be correct and fair and open and progressive. We then get freaked out that there's criticisms about that. But I think that's where we're at in the world. The complexities are just coming to this fulcrum and we're going to have to handle different perspectives. And I think a show can actually be really pivotal and important in its moment. And then, you know, things actually do progress. And often because of the footprint that that initial thing created, Hmm. it's... Well, things get, you know, uh, uh, things date. Yeah. Often entertainment does, certainly comedy does. It's that question, can you no longer interact with a piece of art that's beautiful if, if one piece of it is dubious or questionable? We've got to change our mindset to one of not trying to embed it into black and white, into two camps, but instead remaining agile and open and joyful to yeah. all the perspectives and the changes and nuances. Yeah. And, and with that, I totally agree, and with that, an ability to say I was wrong Yeah. and, oh, I've learnt something more or do you know what I'm reverting to what I thought to 20 years ago or I read this thing the other day that's completely flipped my my black and white perspective that I stamped, you know, in indelible ink. It's changed and I'm okay with that. And hopefully, again, it's the same idea of culture moving and changing. People move and change. We shouldn't be chained to the things that we thought yesterday. I think it should be a testament to self-development and and part of you know, part of my work in trying to get my head around the criminal justice system in the US and the personalities inside that and the human stories inside that meant that I wanted to go into into prisons and work directly with people and that... The, Teaching yoga, Yeah, right? and yeah. meditation, which is not actually really part of my life anymore, but it was a huge part of my life then. And we would go in with a group called liberation prison yoga and I worked with an amazing woman named Annika Lucas and she developed an idea called the unconditional model and we would just bring the unconditional love that maybe was not able to be brought by other people to these people, strangers in front of Mm. us, the power of that kind of offering an opportunity for healing. And that's not to say everyone should offer every person that's done something wrong to them unconditional love. No, it's just saying there is power in it. Mm. To see somebody not for what they've done yesterday, to come to them as a stranger and offer them healing in that moment. And um, I think, yeah, there's 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 great, if, if you can, if you're able to bring that, I certainly not all the time with people in my own life, but if you can bring that, there's probably healing on, on both on sides. On both sides. Yeah. I totally agree. I think we're really looking for those kinds of messages and the leadership um, that can convey that, this idea that we don't have to stay binary. We are so exhausted by trying to force fit an argument into one of two camps. If we can soften into that notion of unconditional, uh, either love, forgiving, uh, expansiveness, mm. um, understanding, we are relieved. We're relieved. I'm relieved listening to you talking about it. I want to pick up on that idea of um, going into the prisons to teach yoga. I know that you went through a process of going, well, what can I do? It's not enough for me to just be an actress or an actor working mm-hmm. in this space, telling this story. And instead of, as is often uh, a bit of a habit amongst many of us, instead of going off and going, right, I'm going to go and do my own charity, you went and did your research, didn't you, to find somebody who was already doing it and going, I'm going to support mm-hmm. them. And, and it should be said that I've fallen into that very pitfall myself of like, but, but at the time. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, at the time I literally put 
I was teaching yoga in a, in a, you know, for-profit studio and I put yoga plus prison. Into Google's. Into Google. And out came this, this organization. And I just wrote to Annika and she was, you know, we kind of formed this really wonderful friendship that lasted for many years. And she became a huge influence in my life and challenged me. Some things I agree with her and some things I still find really challenging. She really, so she had, she's talked about this very publicly. So I, I, you know, don't feel conflicted, but as a, as a young, very young person, she was sold into a pedophile ring. She survived Mm -hmm. and came out bearing a lot of scars and a lot of wisdom. And she sort of looked at the world in terms of power where the power sits, because it was really important for her survival to be able to, at a very young age, um, assess power and how to navigate it. Yes. And, and appease it and okay. feed it yep. because that meant she was able to survive. Yep. Do the so, dance in and around yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so she kind of developed this very unique perspective pre-Trump in an American setting. It's the fawn you know. response. There's flight, fight, freeze. And now they're talking about a fawn response, mm. which, many trauma, rape victims and so on or survivors mm-hmm. um, have to revert to and it's been identified as a survival instinct. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And as a six-year-old child, mm. it's a v- really great really skill really to great have. Skill. Mm. And she shared a lot of those lessons with me privately but also in our teacher trainings and, and a kind of look at the world basically that says those in – extreme positions of power often have a kind of psychopathy that's got them there. They are inherently sort of dangerous people and and they are to be navigated. And, yeah, I don't know, there was just huge learning around looking at a system like a prison system that's inherently power structured and, yeah, just trying to break those things down. What does power mean? Who has endowed that power? Is it the person who's in power? Is it their fault? Is the behaviours that they carry out, is that their fault? And do you spend your energy trying to change that person if they can't be changed or do you go slightly to the left or the right and make change over there which will actually result in more of a systemic shift? Mm. It's such an important lesson. I can see why that would have been pivotal and it would have been very helpful with the career path that you work Yeah, to. I guess, you know, Life is really strange. While you're in the living of it, you can't quite see all the pieces and yeah. how they make sense or why, you, why you're attracted to this person's ideas or how you've come to be in a certain place, a certain time. Yeah. And then the privilege of getting a bit older, you look back and you say, oh, I can draw a path. And if you can draw some logic there, far out it's a very it's a really lovely thing Mm. if you've got imagination enough to to string the dots together how wonderful hey um i just want to pick up on two little things that stem from this idea of going to prisons and and teaching Mm. yoga and meditation not everybody is going to become an activist not everybody's going to speak out but i remember greta thunberg said that one of the best things you can do is support those who put themselves on the front line that is a powerful contribution. And so that's what you were doing in many ways. You were finding out who was already doing that work and you went, I'm going to lend my voice and my expertise to it. And then I think the second thing, and it's just a wonderful phrase that I think Pima Trudran talks about, and that is start where you are. You know, you had done a yoga course, you're a yoga teacher. You didn't have to go and reinvent wheels. As you say, you, you literally typed yoga, something you mm-hmm. can do and prisons. Often getting involved and being of service is so close to home. 
it's it, it really um, worries me that people think they've got to go way out beyond their comfortable zone to help. Often it's just about going one step further, one step in front to provide help and and contribute to whatever cause is important. Yeah. And it's extraordinary to build on that, how gratifying that is to give a little. Yeah. Or give a lot. How much it gives you personally, it's in the end turns out to be quite selfish because it's very uh, nourishing. And my partner and I always talk about there are many doors to the house, you know, we don't know where we're going. And when we open ourselves up to kind of service and helping or contributing, you sort of don't know where it's going to take you. It's another dot. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I it's mean, on that page. It, it's, it's, it's cumulative. It can be. Yeah. And that can be life changing. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You did come out very bravely, very courageously and spoke out on your experiences working with Jeffrey Rush. And it was following, I think, a defamation case that he was running here in Australia. And I think you'd been asked to be a witness against that defamation case, which was in response to allegations that had been made of sexual assault by somebody else. Off the back of all of that, you did an interview for the New York Times and the 7.30 report. What was interesting was to read the responses um, from various people in, in the media, but also from Rush himself. I think there was a statement, a I'm sorry if I offended you type of apology. How was it for you and at the time and how do you feel about it now? I was 24 when I worked with Jeffrey. I was 33 when, when things were forced to, to, to a head. I didn't willingly come to that position. No. I didn't skip along and say, you know, I think I'm just going to talk about this stuff publicly. No, it was it was horrible. Our first daughter had just been born. There was a young woman who was caught in a very serious legal case. She had not chosen to be part of it. She'd been thrown into it. She was entirely by herself in that story and she was being called a liar. I had had identical experiences. Yeah. She very privately went and made a private complaint to it's a theatre so company. It's so similar to the Amber Heard case. It, it's and, exactly and the same. She, she did not take that to the media. It was, it was ripped out of her hands. Um, and then, of course, the media writes about it and then the, the victim has to then be a witness in a defamation case that the 
alleged perpetrator puts forward, which is a technique we discussed in a former episode uh, with Jen Robinson because, of course, she defended um, or worked for Amber Heard in that case in the UK. So then you on that person is on trial. Yeah. Their truth is on trial. Well, they become on trial just like Brittany Higgins. Yeah. It was called the Brittany Higgins trial mm-hmm. and we saw what happened there. So at that time she was very much alone, as I've said, and I knew that my story reflected that to a T. Did you reach out because you wanted to show solidarity and support a girl who was you saw as being very much on her own and isolated? I can't go into probably the ins and outs, but I will say that was something that came to me. Again, it was thrust. People, the, the, people knew about these things. I was forever being asked. Yeah. This, it, it's so hard to talk about because I don't want to get myself in trouble or you in trouble. Yeah, talking about no, these I'm aware of that myself. I, I, I guess what I can say is life is incredibly complex. Jeffrey and I were friends. Yeah. It was a very, very complicated time. Um, and sometimes we're not often asked, you know, our friends aren't perfect, but we're not often asked to face our friends in court. Yeah. Um, and, and I was actually witness in that trial. I was witness X. That's it. Um, but the judge disallowed witness X and we'll never know why. Yeah. But I can say witness X had a testimony that totally supported EJ because that my experiences were like a mirror. So we'll never know why Witness X wasn't allowed, mm. but I wasn't allowed. Yeah. And so then you spoke out, but in the US. You were, you know, yeah. firmly ensconced in New York at the time yeah. and the, uh, Lee Sales flew to mm-hmm. the US to do the interview. And I know that you said, and by the way, I'm I'm sorry to make you upset. No, no. It's I just, am, I'm sorry slash I'm so not. hormonal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, sorry yeah. slash not sorry because mm. these are the conversations that uh, we need to be having. I, I'm so glad you, you point out the complexity of it and how close you were because, um, you know, we are insane to think that we can keep conversations lighthearted and easygoing and simple. Mm. Um, in 2023, it's, it's insanity. It would be really, it would be really bad for this idea of the movement, of moving forward, um, of growth because it's not black and white. And that's what I tried to do with Lee was just say, look, this is really complex. It doesn't all come down to one man's bad behavior. It's, it's a societal yeah. issue. It's, um, a systematic protection of power. Again, it's these power ideas and we support power. And when there's money to be made, Power supports power. And, you know, as I often have to say by way of a caveat, it's a toxic masculinity is, uh, it affects, I think, men just as horrendously as it affects women. Absolutely. Um, so Do, does Jeffrey want to have experienced these things? Absolutely not. No. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't know the guy, but I suspect not. No, no this is, I'm sure we've never spoken since then. Mm. Um, but it's a horrendous impact for everybody. And, it, it, you know, on paper, he won the case. And I say it won in inverted commas. Nobody wins. This is, this is a really difficult, um, he won is, that defica- defamation, defamation case. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, was awarded a sum of money. But what does it really mean when mm. we're all hurting so much? In the final wash up. Yeah. I think it's not enough in this era to say it's hard 
and it's complex and to leave it there, we still have to move into that tricky mm-hmm. space because mm-hmm. if we don't, we are not going we're not going to progress. We're not going to save ourselves. Yeah, it just becomes all too hard and you give up and, and you revert or you say we were, we were wrong. We were wrong to try and and change. You know, at the moment we're in a time where we have to say everything explicitly. We, have, I, to, we have to add caveats yes, constantly. Yes. And footnotes to every sentence. Yeah, and it, it's exhausting. And I so think when we talk people, about uh, a woman, we've then got to say, and of course, by woman, I mean, and when we say, uh, land or I'm currently in the suburb of XYZ, we've then got to acknowledge. And um, I, I, I have to say that I love that. I love that we're in the, a space where we, we kind of put, throw out the full rainbow of, um, of explanation. I, I enjoy that. I also like language. I think. When we say things out loud and name things, there's, there's a power called into action. And I believe that this is a moment in time. Yeah. And we're then, straddling something important. Yeah. And I love that you say that you love it because I do too. And I think, um, the more that we can say that and put it out there, the more comfortable people can be with the kind of weirdness and awkwardness. Yeah. It is awkward. I get it wrong. All the yes. time. And I'll invariably get it wrong in front of my Indigenous friend or in front of my friend that's going through some kind of sexual exploration. Yes. And I, I think that's important. I think the messiness, we've got to embrace the messiness of all of this. Um, and, and, and embrace, like, why are we doing it? So rather than kind of, um, kind of droning off a, an acknowledgement of country really thinking about what you're doing because there is no point doing it if it's just like a kind of meaningless chant. But if you really sort of investigate what you're doing in that moment and dig into it, there's so much power there. If you're kind of just doing it to tick a box at an event, that's actually detrimental. It's harmful. Yeah. Yeah, harmful. I do look forward to a time when we move on and and everything is implicit. And when we talk about land, we are implicitly acknowledging the custodians of the land that we're on. But we're not there yet. Yeah. We're not. So let's keep working away at the messiness of it and keep making mistakes and keep acknowledging when we make mistakes. And add layers to it and a porch over here (laughs) and a lean-to over there and then a, you know, balcony and then a Cape Cod extension. Like that's how things get better. Yeah. I want to move on to your climate fight. I really like how you have done your climate engagement. You've referred to it as a war, and I agree with you on that. We we can treat it very much like a war, but you particularly point out that it requires sacrifice. And this is something that is not discussed very often in our highly individualized culture, apart from Jordan Peterson, and this is a point where I actually do agree with the guy, uh, he talks about this a lot, that anything any good in human existence has come about from giving up something else, you know, shortly beforehand. The point of sacrifice is really important. And of course, that's what I think motivated you to make that announcement on Instagram, where you decided to give up your green card. Talk us through that. So, it was during the fires. I felt so overwhelmed with grief and terror and looking around and seeing that lack of leadership and then thinking, fuck, I don't have any leadership in my life. What am I doing? 
what am I doing bitching and moaning about things that need to be better? But what am I doing? I'm flying between two countries consistently. I'm living a life in the States and here and flying our family back and forth and not really focusing on the fact that Australia is the front line. And I happen to be born in Australia and, you know, there's some work I could be doing at home. And I was putting a lot of energy into my work in prisons and in the criminal justice system in the US, a place where admittedly I had lived for seven years, but my home my home is Australia. And it was on fire. And it was on fire. Mm. And I was breathing the smoke. It was impossible for so many of us, I think, breathing the smoke. If our homes weren't be- being burnt down, breathing the smoke brought it home. It was yeah. in our bodies. We could not deny how pervasive and real this was. And that's the moment of change for a lot of, for a lot of people when I speak to them about their climate journey. The fires was huge. From that point, then I signed up to go to university and study sustainability and understand this world of change. And and I would say there's definitely things I got really wrong. For example, calling it a war is not super helpful psychologically. Yeah, talking about sacrifice is actually not super helpful. <laughs> yeah, I- uh, it, it's real, but it's not it's not helpful um, in terms of why moving is that? people. Yeah, why is, why because do you think because people don't want to sacrifice things? Um, and but look, there is a bigger truth. There's a bigger truth. See, I agree with you there and I used to think that and in the wrangling, in the writing of this one wild and precious life, I oscillated between the two and where I came down on, I wrote the book in a way that I tried to make it sexy, Mm -hmm. like I went hiking around the world into exotic places and tried to make it seem, you know, like beautiful and free in the right way to live and I stand by that theory, absolutely, like I make my sacrifices, quote unquote, in such a way that it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. It actually is joyful. So I think we need to have a discussion around this idea of sacrifice and pain and going without, you know, and austerity and frugality and all of those kinds of things, which we think are bad things and going to turn people off. My argument is we've got to make those things seem appealing because in fact they are. Well, that, that is exactly the journey that's kind of unfolded. The, incredible gifts that have come from those decisions. And I knew what I was doing. I knew I was pegging the gauntlet publicly so I could not wind it back. You know, when you do that. Awesome. I wanted to know if that's what you were doing. Yeah. Were you also doing it because you were hoping that others might do the same? Like- for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that they might, they might say, Hey, you could jump on this bandwagon and join us. And we're, we're, I wanted to, I wanted people to say, Hey, we've already been doing that for 10 years. Come and join us. You or, know, Hey, that's awesome that you're doing mm. that. I'm an actor based between, I don't know, the UK and LA. I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah. As part of this big journey, I started this community organization that's very much focused down south here in the Illawarra. And I will say it's more person to person. And what people are willing to do, volunteer, it's not even the right word. It's just like an incredible way of being. Um, it's called High Neighbor. It's called High Neighbor, yeah. yeah. Let's just do the, a bit of a shout yeah, out The organization's it. called High Neighbor and, and we talk about transition, energy transition, because I've sort of identified for me, for my money, in the triage of things that need to happen, energy transition is our is our biggest thing. Um, we and of really course, Saul Griffiths is based down here as well. Yeah, yeah. He's so been on the podcast and we've talked all of this. Yeah. I think his book's right in amongst all this chaos of our house. Um, but for me, it was also about bringing humanity to this conversation. So our organisation is all about saying, hey, everyone's welcome. So give us the elevator pitch for High Neighbour. Basically what High Neighbour does is we use the funds from 
solar rooftops to support workers who have been in high fossil fuel jobs transition into low technical low carbon jobs. So basically we offer scholarships for people to train in things like solar, EV battery installation, um, you know, induction cooktop stoves, all kinds of really practical things. On the larger set down the line, we're looking at things like training people in hydrogen, in wind turbines, all things that are really relevant to, to our area. Our area is a, a coal and steel area. Yeah. So we've got lots of opportunity for transformation. We've got this incredible industrial area, incredible industrial zoning. We could very well be the hydrogen, you know, wind capital, capital next to Newcastle. You know, we, we could be doing that. And, and it's, and it's all a highly on the cards. skilled labor force. Exactly. Um, who, from my experience, having spoken to various miners around Australia who are interested in all of this, and there's many who are, they're excited by it. Like, have you actually got some ex-coal miners or mm. fossil fuel workers well, I, who've made that transition? When I was talking about that abundance, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking of two guys that have become my friends and, and co-volunteers. Uh, and I guess it's one of the most unexpected sentences in my life. Daryl and Greg, a retired coal miner and retired steel worker who are so committed to this work so moved by this work that for me represents the whole ethos of our organization yeah it's not about where you've come from or what, what what you've done those things are not wrong we've simply been powering and building a nation the way we knew yeah. and now we know it's not so great for the environment and we've got to turn it around we don't punish people and, for the and past it has to be a just transition mm-hmm. it has to be fair because these people have livelihoods absolutely absolutely and and unions have worked hard to give good jobs and take care of people we don't just rip things away from people because the science has changed yeah and i think um a lot of people are uh, probably not aware of the extent to which the unions are really working in cooperation with climate activists they're like we want to make sure our members have new jobs in this new economy and as fast as possible because we can see this is where the money's going to be at. I find a lot of hope in that sort of juxtaposition, you know, that sort of nexus where the different communities cross over. You have been quoted, I think, on a number of occasions, and I love this approach, that climate change is a wonderful opportunity and that it is open to all of us because there are other causes on the planet where I think we can feel quite self-conscious about stepping in, like the race debate, the gender debate. If you're a man, you can feel quite odd stepping into that space. But climate is something that we can all do. And I do love that you call it an opportunity. Is that, again, something that you've consciously thought through as a statement to co-op people in the most helpful way? I lie awake at night with this stuff. I can I'm tell. Sh- I'm sure you do too. Oh, yeah. I'm sure so many of the people listening do. And we have to bring a mental framework to this that will support us. I know from my own traps and pitfalls that if it becomes a bath of anxiety, we become paralysed. Mm. And that's not helpful. It's not helpful for us, our children, ourselves. We stop. We're frozen. So when we change the way we talk about things and the way we think about things and bring an opportunity mindset and and see all the good work that is possible, all the space that's possible, we can move and we can breathe again. Yeah. But it's um, you know, it's a mental dance every day and I Isn't it? Yeah, and it's very conscious and it's it's 
been come out over, you know, a number of wrong turns and um And doing the fear and the paralysis and then realizing you've got to find the joy to be able to keep moving forward. And that's what I would invite anybody who is listening to be conscious of. All of those stages are really cool. Like yeah. they're kind of all part of what you need to do, including staying awake at night, because this is important. And quite often, you know, as a, a very seasoned insomniac, the way that I rationalize and come to some sort of peace with it, with my insomnia is to go, all right, I can't get all my good my good thinking done in daylight hours. There's too many distractions. Vision actually stops me from thinking. So quite often, yeah, lying awake at night thinking through this thing is really important. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that I would really invite people who are listening and, and are feeling this way. It's like, it's good. It's part of the process. Yes. I would welcome any breastfeeding uh, <laughs> folks out there. Uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to spin some wheels yeah. while you're breastfeeding in the middle of the night. Troubleshoot, trouble, <laughs> troubleshoot all the planet's woes. There is that that silly thing of we got one life and it's wild it's, and precious. Yeah, it's wild and precious. <laughs> and um, it's worth feeling into. And do you know what? I just didn't, there are so many things I didn't know I could do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can do I, them now. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know, there's a, oh, I've forgotten her name now. Some American self-help woman talks about we can do hard things. Is it Glennon Doyle? I think it is. We can do hard things. And I often find myself saying that phrase. I've not read the book or mm -hmm. listened to the podcast, but I know the phrase. We underestimate not only how many hard things we can do, but also the beauty of doing hard things. Much of our fear comes from having grown up in an era where hard, difficult, uncomfortable things are so taboo. Oh no, we've got a piece of technology that protects us from that. No, we're not meant to go. That's not meant to be hard. If something is hard, we complain to the manager. Uh, we get outraged and so much of our pain and discomfort and, and atrophy is as a result of thinking it's not meant to be this way. If you switch it around to actually it is meant to be this way and this is perfect and this is exactly where we need to be at this point in history. We need to be sleeves rolled up, engaged, getting into community, and I will say fight. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we get a bit nervous about using that word, but seeing the fight as a beautiful thing. What in the final wash-up is left for you? What matters? It is no mistake that that baby is crying I know, right it's now. hilarious just as I asked it, the question. But it's perfect, right? Mm. So as soon as I heard the baby cry, my heart leapt. Mm. It jumped upstairs out of the basement, out of this semi-converted, ridiculous, moist basement, upstairs to beautiful Marley crying up there. And you kind of gave me a heads up. You were going to ask me this question. And I thought, holy shit, what am I? I don't have any answer for that. But the baby crying right in that moment is the answer. If our heart still leaps for somebody, something, there you are, mm, you know? Yeah. And I had this vision last night. It was these sleepless nights and I was kind of thinking of a candle being lit, relit and relit and relit and thinking about it like the consciousness of our lives with our body lighting on and off and on and off. And, you know, we have these interact. We choose to have children despite this, this climate crisis. We light and relight ourselves to keep our hearts sleeping. Mm. And I think for me that's probably it. Yeah, if our when when all else is gone, if if your heart can still be moved, that's what's left. If you gravitate towards that light. 
Um, that's made me very, very teary. I get, I get what you're saying. You know, that is the point. That's what we've got to steer ourselves to lean towards wherever we can is that light and that life. Mm. Um, humanity, you mm. know, it's humanity. Hey, um, I love this conversation. <laughs> I can hear the baby now yeah. outside the, outside the roller door. Jazzy, we're coming. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. There was a lot going on in that chat and, in fact, my producer, Darcy, had to cut a bunch of it out because it was it was long. And then Yale and I kept talking afterwards for about an hour or so in her house and then we continued emailing with extra ideas and developments and thoughts that we had. In fact, off the back of the conversation, she told me she reached out to a powerful, let's say, participant or colleague in the Rush case. And as she said, she did so in the name of complexity, rigor, and also forgiveness, which I think is a marvellous reason for doing just about anything or at least anything meaningful. I'm super glad I've kicked off a new year with this conversation. It almost sets the tone for where I want to head in all conversations here and beyond in the rest of my life. I love the messiness and the complexity as an antidote to the siloed bifurcation that's going on around us. I love the idea of being honest with our place in any issue and being dedicated to being of service, finding our way to make things better in whatever way we can. And really, it can just be a matter of whacking a bunch of terms into Google and seeing where it all takes you. My wild friends, I'll see you next week. 